This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 104 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is Sally Field, one of the most popular and revered actresses of our time, who was kind enough to have me over to her home in Pacific Palisades for a long and wide-ranging conversation. The 70-year-old two-time Oscar winner and three-time Emmy winner, who started in the business when she was just 17, has one of the most eclectic resumes on record. She became a huge star through two TV sitcoms she made when she was still a teen, Gidget, in which she plays a peppy surfer girl, and then The Flying Nun, in which she plays, well, you get it. Then, following a massively acclaimed Emmy-winning performance in one of TV's first miniseries, Sybil, in which she plays a young woman with multiple personalities, Field made what was considered an almost impossible jump from TV stardom to film stardom, and within a six-year span, won the Best Actress Oscar twice. The first win came for Norma Ray, in which she plays a southern textile mill worker who finds a social consciousness, and the second for Places in the Heart, in which she plays a farmer's widow. In between, Field also was the female lead in a string of blockbusters with Burt Reynolds, including Smokey and the Bandit. And she subsequently starred in many other popular films, including Absence of Malice, Steel Magnolias, Mrs. Doubtfire, Forrest Gump, and Lincoln. Oh, and she also made the then-stigmatized jump back from film stardom to television stardom, first in a guest role on ER, and then as the star of Brothers and Sisters, winning Emmys for both. Field's most recent starring role came in the independent film Hello, My Name is Doris, a comedy released back in March in which she plays an older office worker who becomes smitten with a younger colleague. Her acclaimed performance might well result in her 12th Golden Globe nomination. Over the course of our conversation, Field discusses why, after stumbling into teen stardom, she quickly came to feel constrained by and resentful of it, how she began taking acting classes at the actor's studio and fighting for different sorts of roles, what her Gidget co-star Don Porter, her Flying Nun co-star Madeline Sherwood, her Sybil co-star Joanne Woodward, and her Norma Ray director Martin Ritt each did that changed her life, why she feels her legendary second Oscar speech, often misquoted as, you like me, you really like me, has been so misunderstood, and what it's been like for her as she's gotten older in this business, trying to continue to find creatively satisfying work. I found Field to be one of the most honest and interesting guests we've had on this podcast, and I hope you'll enjoy this time with her as much as I did. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Ms. Field, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. To begin with, we always just ask a form question. Where were you born and raised? And what did your folks do for a living? I do know the answer, but I'd love to hear it from you. <laughs> I was born in Pasadena, California, and I was raised in the San Fernando Valley. And my folks were really working class actors. They they were my stepfather was a stuntman slash actor, and my mother was a working actress for many years, and then sort of stopped. 
I understand that you sort of had a life-changing moment around 13 when you were, I guess, first dabbling in performing arts yourself. What, what happened at that point? Well, it was just simply the first time I found a stage. In those days, luckily, even in uh, middle school or, or junior high, as we used to call yes. it, they had a theater arts department, they had drama department. And I was 12 years old in the seventh grade. The first time I did anything, the first time I walked on a stage, even though we didn't have a stage, it was really just in the classroom there. It was Birmingham High School. And Oh, it turned into Birmingham High School. Birmingham High School in those days, early on, it was both high school and junior high. Mm-hmm. So it was huge. It was an old army hospital. And it really wasn't much different than the army hospital because in reality, it had served both World War II and Korea. So it hadn't been all that long that it had stopped you know, being an mm-hmm. army hospital and turned into a school. And so you're asked to perform, you have the opportunity to perform at 12. But then I I read about something at, I I think it was 13, where you just kind of discovered what it could be like, right? Was there a kind of a a particular moment that you've wanted to recapture where you first felt like this was was what acting can be? You know, I never really had a, a, I never called it acting. I I never had a, a clear vision of a craft or, you know, or certainly of a profession. My mother had been fortunate enough to, she'd been placed under contract when she was very young before I was born to Paramount Pictures. And one of the great things is she, when you're placed under contract in those days, you went to the studio every day because you studied and they gave you elocution lessons and movement lessons and dance lessons. And, you know, they are always trying to get you to be somebody else who was ever the flavor of the month, Jean Arthur or Jennifer Jones or whomever mm-hmm. it was. But she had this great good fortune to study with Charles Lawton, who is honestly, you know, arguably or not arguably, one of the greatest actors who ever lived, Mm -hmm. both on stage and screen. And he had a little company of players in Hollywood called the Charles Lawton Players. How, how, How original. And she was a part of it. So she had the opportunity to be on stage with him and to be directed by him, doing Cherry Orchard and Ibsen and Shakespeare. And that stayed, that love of that, of this craft, words, storytelling, stayed in her. So I had that somewhere in my family. She was, you know, transported by that kind of craft, that kind of art, really. And so I, when I first started and I was just a little kid and what did I know? Nothing, except I, I, the first time that I was doing a scene, you know, if you were doing exercises or you were doing improvs or you were doing whatever you're doing to, within the drama class. And then I had a scene that I had to do where you had to memorize and focus. And, and it was just the first time where something happened inside me. There was like a bell went off, like something cleared. And it was that I could hear myself for the first time. And the chatter in my head to be okay or to be liked or to be acceptable or to, you know, I was raised in the 50s. So we had a lot of rules to follow as women. (laughs) And all of them were gone all of a sudden. And all it was is that I could hear myself for the first time. And it didn't last long. It was just this pure, clear ring. And then it was gone. And I then, for forever after, really, spent my life, certainly the early part of my life, of my then career, chasing after that, 
that that ring, that sound, that that clarity that didn't always happen, that I couldn't always find. But every now and again, when I wasn't expecting it, it would go bing, and every all the lights were brighter. I I I moved, my body moved, but somehow I wasn't telling it to move. And it was such an exquisite kind of feeling that, you know, going on with a career and all of that, had it had nothing to do with earning a living. It, it had all to do with finding this feeling. That all being said, you had seen, because your mother and father were not, you know, stars, they were not, it wasn't always a stable life. Mm-hmm. And I, from what I've read, it, there were some tough times that came as a result of their unpredictable careers. And so did any of that give you any pause about continuing to chase that feeling because you knew what what could come with that? Of course, it taught me a great deal that just the information stayed inside me. It made me terribly frightened of money. Um, But I know a lot of women raised in the 50s remain terribly frightened of of, of finances and money and numbers and things. And for me, it, it did that, you know, quadruply because there were so many times in in my childhood where we had to sell the house quickly and and then go to someplace smaller and or then start renting and even though you know there wasn't a lot of hand wringing and I could you could feel it in the family it was it was frightening mm-hmm. and there is a feeling of great instability but if you're an actor you had better get used to that <laughs> because that's your life is all about instability. There isn't any guarantee. There's no tenure. You don't, right. you know, you don't have a nine to five job where, you know, yeah. you know, you work your way up and you write enough papers and you get published. You're going to, you know, it, you, you, you could be here today and vanished <laughs> tomorrow. So as you graduated from high school, what did you imagine your course was going to be? And then what is it that happened right around that time that sort of set it? You know, I, I just sort of lived in a fog for, for many reasons. My brother, who was two and a half years older, had earned a gymnastics scholarship and was was at Berkeley, um, who would he would ultimately begin become one of our finest physicists in this country. Wow. But I and maybe because it, of, of my family or because it was the very early 60s, no one mentioned any of that to me. And and the schools at that time didn't have a kind of a safety net. You know, you didn't have the school counselors that my kids did that said, okay, what are you going to do? Here's the SATs. I want you to get ready for it. You know, offering, you know, this bevy of choices. I didn't see any choices. I had never been out of the state. I'd never been on an airplane. I hardly knew that New York existed. <laughs> and so I had nothing planned. Like I wasn't going to college. I, I didn't know what to do, but I knew I had to find a stage for no other reason. I didn't see it clearly in my head like, oh, I better earn a living. I How, well, how am I going to take care of myself? I only was after the twinkle on yeah. the edges of my eyes. So my stepfather, who I repeat was a stuntman, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he knew of a workshop. So obviously it was not going to be, you know, let's go, let's see if we can get you into Yale Drama School. <laughs> it was located in Hollywood. It was using the facilities of the old Columbia Studios, which is on Sunset and Gower. Mm-hmm. And it just used the facilities at night. And so I did a scene for it during the summer that I graduated. So happy graduation. There you are. Throw your hat in the air. You're done. Goodbye. And like a week later, I 
you know, I auditioned for this workshop with my mother. She was <laughs> we, your scene partner. She was my scene partner. We did a scene from Lillian Hellman's Toys in the Attic. Yeah. I had no idea what I, what, what I was doing. I had no idea. It was like seething sexuality. And I'm like, who knew? You know? and, and I got into the workshop, um, and I didn't know that the people watching the audition scene to say you're in or you're out, they were casting people for television. And the first day I went to the workshop, which was like the following week, because this was at the beginning of the summer in 1964 when I graduated, the casting man came out while I was waiting for my brother to pick me up because I wasn't allowed to drive at night. And it was Eddie Void III who was casting for Screen Gyms, which is the television division of Columbia, and asked me to come on an interview. And so I, sure. <laughs> and I didn't, you know, I hadn't, didn't have an agent or I didn't have, I didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. I, I just was a kid. And so I went the next day, my stepfather brought me the next day to this meeting and I tested and retested and read and reread and for the entire summer. And at the end of the summer, as everyone else was going off to school, literally, and I realized I was going nowhere by have a good first year at, at, at school or wherever they were going, I got it. And it was for a television series called Gidget. And it was, you know, like fate. I mean, not, not really fate, because what is that? Somebody, something was looking out for me, because I don't know what I would have done mm-hmm. otherwise. Mm-hmm. I guess I would have scrambled and figured something out. Who knows? But there I was, bam, just sort of thrust into it. Amazing. And I was 17. So you're 17, you've never acted professionally before, and suddenly you're now carrying a show, Mm -hmm. you're pretty quickly famous, Mm -hmm. and a part of what I think, I believe fairly quickly became a cultural phenomenon. So how did you handle all of that in fairly short order? I don't know. I just ignored it, I think. I, I lived, you know, as I said, I just lived kind of in a little fog. And I think it was also about the fact that I had this place in me that wanted something that had nothing to do with this. And I was certainly trying to learn what I had to learn around me with camera and and the crews and how you do this kind of work. And I had a wonderful, wonderful man who really put his arm around me and never let me go, but treated me like an equal, even though I was I had just fallen off the turnip truck. <laughs> and that was Don Porter who played Gidget's father. Yeah. His generosity and complete regard for me I know gave me strength but I'd also come out of the Birmingham High School drama department where I never got off the stage I almost didn't graduate literally I had to go to night school to graduate because (laughs) I wouldn't go to the classes and I I just I was so hungry to know more about theater you know demanding we do theater in the round and then demanding we do children's theater and then you know just I was just a tyrant (laughs) so I had built this little little and I'm sure it was a kind of an armor that, that or a little land, uh, a kind of land that, that young people put themselves in so that they even have the strength to go out into the big bad world. They, they put themselves in a land of saying, I own this. Mm-hmm. I own this. Get out of my way, world. And partially it's because my brain wasn't formed yet. It didn't know to be as frightened as it should have been. So there was a kind of part of me that felt that never I never felt any fear at all. I never felt nervous or afraid. How much was your life different? I mean, could you go to the supermarket or was it now just a totally different experience? 
Well, my life was a totally different experience, mainly because I never had any time to go to the supermarket. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I worked t- literally 24 hours a day, mm-hmm. practically, in, in, in those days. You know, you, there's no tape. You're doing film, so it takes longer. The lighting takes longer. And I was in every single scene. Mm-hmm. So it was five days a week, but from, from the time the sun was barely peeking its head up until it was long gone. And so... On the weekends, I was still living at home, for Gidget at least. So I just was kind of in a daze. Mm-hmm. I was, I was tired yeah. then, but tired in an exhilarated sort of way. So you were enjoying it. I was completely enthralled, and I don't think I would ever. I never think in in terms. People are always amazed at me. I don't know why I don't think in terms of fun or mm-hmm. you know happy or. It was compelling. And I was so profoundly alive. Mm-hmm. So what is that? I don't know. That's the, the good of life, I right. would think. Why did Gidget end after just one season? And why also, I believe, around that same time, as soon as you could, financially and legally, you got out of your household, right? Mm-hmm. You got your own place mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. So why did those two things happen? Well, Gidget, in those days, Gidget was on the air in 1965. I think the season was 1965 through 1966, even though we shot the pilot in 1964. Mm-hmm. And those days, you shoot like 38 shows. It's not like today, you know, when it's like 22 or 21. Amateurs. It's like yeah. huge. <laughs> you know, these are like the entire year. You, right. sh- you work yourself into a hole. And also, the, the, the net, there was only three networks, and there was nothing else. There was no, no other, you know, outlet. And... The, the networks were very rigid in how they, how they did things. Rarely, every now and again, but very, very rarely did they ever change a show's time slot or pick it up again after they had let it go. Never did another network pick up another show's sloughed-off material. <laughs> and so Gidget, you know, it didn't have good ratings for the year, but when it went into its summer reruns, the kids were on summer vacation and they found the show. And the show got hugely successful in in a matter of weeks. And duh, I mean, (laughs) really, folks? (laughs) But it had already been canceled. But it had already been canceled. Wow. But they had never moved the slot. They had never looked to see what was the problem. Why weren't the kids, maybe they hadn't promoted it, right? I don't know. I can't really answer that. All I know is, is then ABC, they didn't pick it up. But they went to Harry Ackerman, who had produced Gidget, and said, we need another show to put Sally in. And I didn't know that. They didn't, you know, say that to me. Mm-hmm. And so that was summer. And I had auditioned. I didn't, didn't really even audition. I had met with, you know, on like on two projects or something. It was kind of like amazing. That's probably why I wasn't destroyed when Gidget was, was canceled because I, I still was feeling so invigorated about the possibilities, you know, this perfect place of perhaps, you know. I had heard that one of the things, maybe this is not correct, but one of the things that you went out for, I guess, in between the end mm-hmm. of Gadget and the beginning of The Flying Nun was the part of Elaine in The Graduate. Is that true? No, that's not That's true. not true. All no, right, no. that's good. We can no, settle no, no. that. It's totally not okay, true. Okay, good. I never got to really audition for anything ever in my, in my life until way later, believe it or not. I, I went on a meeting and was offered a role in a movie called The Way West. I never met. Mike Nichols for anything okay. ever, unfortunately. So I, that summer I went off and did this 
movie where I played this this, this role. It was with uh, Kurt Douglas and Robert Mitchum and Richard Widmark. Wow. It was like the tail end of those old, yeah. big Western things, and it was kind of a mind-boggling experience because I'd never been away from home mm-hmm. and all sorts of things. But after that, you left home. I had I had moved out right right about then, right as a, a Gidget finished. I was. 18 turning 19 I think and I think it's just you know because you know what the heck it's was part of this though that and I'm, I'm drawing on this from other things I've read where you you've done other interviews and things you were not the biggest fan of your stepfather were you right <laughs> he was a, certainly a character he was a colorful colorful character there was a lot of stuff that who knows that probably you know helped me become who I am because you you deal with really big and colorful and confusing people in your life and and ultimately probably what's what drove me to have to have that have to hear my own voice you know ultimately probably had I not had that difficulty in my life I don't know that I would have been that possessed to own it because I couldn't figure out what was going on uh, inside myself well he kind of comes into play again here when you're offered the Flying Nun. Mm-hmm. It's the 60s. Mm-hmm. You're now, as you said, 18, 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And my sense is you did not want to be playing a nun. No, I did not want to be playing a nun. <laughs> I wanted to, I turned it down. I turned it down many, many times and was scared to do it because I was scared to say the word no. I couldn't, it wasn't somehow something I was allowed to do. I mean, it's taken a long time for women to be able to say no when you're raised in the 50s. Um, certainly not, not me. So I, I did did have the strength. I came home from the film that we shot in Oregon, and there was a script waiting for me. And I was now 19. I turned 19 somewhere in there, and I think it was 19. And I was starting to see that there was a world out there that I didn't know existed, and that I deeply wanted to learn to be an actor, that I had something already going on inside of me, but I knew that it, it was not something that came easy that it was something you had to that you had to work for that to be excellent at anything was not something you woke up one morning and and were that it that it that it cost something and I wanted to pay that cost I wanted to go and learn and whatever it was and I think I was probably starting to see that New York was there and I could go and live there on a dime and be struggling and do all of that you know, sort of romantic vision of, of that. And I turned this down, and I turned it down, and I turned it down, you know, just bravely. I mean, really just like trembling all over yeah. it. I was doing it. <laughs> then my stepfather came to see me in my new little apartment that I had barely had it furnished with a few little, you know, <laughs> things. Still in L.A. Still in L.A., down the, as far as I, you know, it was only down the street from their newest sort of rented house. Mm-hmm. It was still very close. And he was, you know, acting very nice and proud of me for moving out and all that stuff. And but then he, he, he said that Harry Ackerman had called him. I, I didn't even know he knew Harry Ackerman. And I don't think he did know Harry Ackerman. <laughs> but Harry Ackerman called him mm-hmm. and asked him to see what he could do. He said to me something I'll never forget, ever, 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 because it went, you know, like a sword into your gut. He said, Sally, you really have to do this. You know, you didn't make very much money. He's like throwing money at you. You didn't make very much money on Gidget. You don't have very much money. He said, you really have to do this. 
I said, I want to, I don't like it. It isn't what I want to do. He said, yes, but you may never work again. I mean, it's the, the cliche. Mm. Had I been savvier, I'd have gone really chortle, chortle. <laughs> but it scared me. So he scared you so much that you now, against your real wishes, yeah. did it. Yeah, it's like something in me, it was the first time I felt the feeling, and I've, I've felt it subsequently too many times. You feel some part of you just like literally lay down and die. And I called them and said, okay. And I didn't know they were already shooting the pilot or somebody else. Oh. <laughs> so she got the boot. <laughs> yeah, which is just dreadful. So those three years that that show ran, uh-huh. the show was very successful, but you hated it. I, I had a very, very hard time. Mm-hmm. But who knows? I may, might have been having a hard time. through. Though, those are hard years for anybody. Sure. I mean, so it was, you know, 19 into 20, into 21, and, and the start of 22. I'm wearing 22. And in the midst Something of like that, that, you, I believe, had your first child? Mm-hmm. I get married. I, a lot of things happened in it. I, there was so much life that went on in those three years. I think the first important thing that happened is that Madeline Sherwood, who played the Mother Superior, recognized how really seriously depressed I was and took me to the actor's studio at the end of the first year of The Nun or towards the end of the first year of The Nun, and something happened there. That was, I had found my home and, you know, subsequently began working with Lee for years, which and was a huge turning And this is when he would come out for half the year to L.A.? Yes, he would come out for half of the year. For six months of the year, he lived in New York, and for six months of the year, he lived in L.A. So that was that happened in the first year. In the second year, at the end of the second year, I got married. It shocked everybody, including myself. And <laughs> Who was the, this? It was my high school sweetheart, okay. who'd always been there. But I didn't, you know, again, it wasn't something I thought I was going to do. And then in the third year of The Nun... As we were beginning the third year, I, I told him I was pregnant. So it was like, So we've got what? a pregnant nun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if, as if I wasn't a walking sight gag before, I right. sure was then. Right. And the thing that had really been demoralizing you through those three years was, A, that it just wasn't the kind of part you wanted to be playing, but also the culture on the set. Some of the directors were condescending. Oh, well, right that, there. you know what? That's always the way. Is it? Yeah. You, <laughs> you know, you'll all, you, certainly because... In, in, Having done, you know, lots of television now, the directors come and go. And every once in a while, you you know, a director will come in that you don't know. Or certainly on The Nun, this was a lot. You know, directors will come in I didn't know. I was unfamiliar with them. And, you know, I'm the kid there. I'm the young one, even though by now I'm gathering some miles in my saddle. So I wasn't like a real human being that needed to be treated with any kind of regard, they would sort of pull me around by my arm, you know, you stand here and they place me here and, you know, as if I were the bowl of fruit. And I honestly, periodically throughout it would gain so much weight. I was a bowl of fruit. <laughs> I look Because you were feeling depressed. Because I was so depressed. Yeah. You know, that just kind of depression you gain, you yeah. know, 20 pounds in two seconds. Right. You know? But that was neither here nor there. That's, that is the, you know, the the place where you, you know, I needed to find my own voice. I needed to find my own dignity. I needed to find, you know, somebody's not going to give you that just because you're alive. Trust me. But something inside you sensed that there were, and, and clearly you've sensed this even before the three-year period of The Flying Nun started, that there were other sorts of acting opportunities mm-hmm. out there that I guess you could 
or people might more snobbishly refer to as serious, more serious mm-hmm. acting opportunities. Also that beyond TV, there were film opportunities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the big thing, I guess, at that point, even still to this day, but it's almost gone, I think, is the idea that somebody from television could go to film at that point was oh, yeah. pretty insane, right? Oh, no, it, can't, it wasn't doable. It was not doable. But that was what you um, hoped well, for? Well, it didn't. Again, it wasn't about, it was only about getting to the work. By then, I had been studying with Lee, and it was only about finding a place to do the work. And I didn't care where it was, but it wasn't happening in television. Right. <laughs> it sure as heck wasn't happening on The Flying Nun. And the monotony of The Flying Nun is mind-numbing to do it day in and day out. You're essentially saying the same thing. It's nonsense. There's no connection with the human being. It's just stupid, you know, and it... And, and, and maybe it was entertaining to people who watched it, but it wasn't for, for somebody who has to do it. Yeah. You know, it's relentless, chippy, chirpy kind of thing. <laughs> you know, it's not, and there was nothing realistic about it. You know, there's not, not ever a moment where two human beings talk about something that's going on between them. So when you today have people come up to you, like I believe Mario Martindale, for instance, yes. did after our panel yes, the yes. other day, and she says, I just have to tell you the flying nun was the greatest <laughs> thing of my childhood and all well, that. You know, that she was probably a little a little bitty girl. I'm much older than her. And, you know, it was, honestly, there were so few, television was the only place where little girls could go and see anything happening to young women mm-hmm. that looked in any way, shape, or form like like life. There right. wasn't any place to do that. And, and the fact that it was funny and it was, she was getting into trouble and getting out of trouble. I mean, it was a little like something that I loved and, and, and when I was growing up, and that was like Little Lulu comic books. Mm-hmm. It was a lot like Little Lulu, Little Lulu, <laughs> you know, like the little troublemaker you are, you know. And, and and so when I was, you know, eight, nine, and ten, I loved those Little Lulu comic books because it was little girls getting into trouble and then finding a way out. And where else are you to get? And Maybe where, like Nancy Drew or something. Well, yeah, but, and I read yeah. all of those. Yeah. I mean, exactly, for yeah. exactly for that reason. And but. The shows that were on for women, you know, there was I Love Lucy, which was brilliant mm-hmm. and stunning, but there, there weren't a whole lot of, of choices. It, when I did The Nun, there were more, certainly there were more coming in, and it, they were older than I, but they were young married women. Um, there was Bewitched, and I Dream of Jeannie, and then The Partridge Family, and, you know, they were all primarily women's shows. So before I ask you about what you've described as, quote, my first real role, close quote, I have to ask you today when you maybe are flipping through the TV or whatever and you come upon either Gidget or The Flying Nun, what goes through your mind? I haven't ever done that. Never? (laughs) Where would I find it? They don't have it on like TV land or one of these classes? I don't find myself flipping around on TV land. (laughs) Yeah. I have not not done that in an extremely long time. So, No. Uh-uh. But it wouldn't. It would not be like PTSD to see this stuff no. again. No, no, not not at all. I honestly, you know, everybody has some journey. It's just that mine, I could go back and actually look at. Right, you know, right. it, it, but if you could go back and look at your journey when you were eighteen, <laughs> nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, right. would you would you forgive that young man or 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 it would be it would be a a weird experience Mm -hmm. but uh so for you though this what this first real role was in bob rafelson's Mm -hmm. 1976 movie stay hungry how did that come about when we were just talking about how hard it is to make the jump from tv to film 
and it just was one of those things. It was a, it was killer. I had done a third television series, luckily that was very short lived. And then I had said to everybody, I'm not doing anymore. I quit. <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> I, I said, I'm not doing any more situation comedy television. I knew that the only way that I could get to the work I wanted to do was to reinvent myself completely. And to do that, I had to vanish for a while. I had to get out of their vision as long as I could because I'd been there already for 10 years. And I, you know, by the time I was, before I was 25 or something like that, almost 10 years, because I started when I was 17. So I'm like still young mm -hmm. enough to, to have a, some sort of career, but I had to go away. I had to not be seen and so try to make enough money doing things that wouldn't be noticed wherever that was. I'd do a game show or do mm -hmm. something here, do summer stock in Ohio or do wherever it was. And because I was working all the time at the Actors Studio, which at that time in the 70s, the late 60s and 70s, the Actors Studio here in Los Angeles was incredible. It was so filled with with the actors that that ultimately became, you know, that Jack Nicholson was there and Sally Kellerman was there and Ellen Burstyn was there and, and Bruce Stern was there. And, and it was just, and it was packed always with people who wanted to work and doing, you know, really interesting out there things. And so because I had, I was working there so much, I think I, there was, there was, a bit of a buzz or talk about it, but it's also like there were these group of filmmakers, Bob Rafelson being one of them, that were using primarily actor studio actors. That's what Jack was, that's what Bruce was, that, you know, many, 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 many others. And they knew of me. They knew the kind of who I was more than what people thought I was. And also there was a casting director who knew a woman I had worked with on the last series, wonderful, wonderful actress named Zora Lampert wonderful, fabulous woman. I loved her. And she told this casting person, Diane Crittenden, to definitely put me on the list. The first time I'd been on a list. I couldn't get on anybody's audition. list yeah. to get in the door. Yeah. So they put me on the list. I was a first. But by then, I had worked so hard, and I'd, I'd also worked with a man named David Craig, who was an extraordinarily brilliant teacher, which had to do with musical theater, which sounds like it doesn't apply because I will never be the singer I want to be. But his classes really taught a kind of structure that I did, wasn't getting from the actor's studio. But he also taught this the art of the audition. There's an art to an audition, which who knew? <laughs> and he taught all of these lucky actors this by-the-numbers art of the audition. And one of the things is that most people hire not who they think is the best actor, but who they think is actually that person. They will hire... When that actor walks through the door as that character, they go, well, there's, there's the character right there. And they think, I mean, obviously there's some directors and casting people who are smarter than this, but as a general rule, they will, you know, credit somebody, give the role to somebody who they think is the character way more, way more easily than they will give it to an actor who they think will portray the character. So I couldn't come in as Sally. I had to, I had to know that the audition started long before I got in the car to drive to the audition and that I could never, ever let it down. So whoever the character was, that's who I was. And in this case, the character was quite <laughs> unlike quite, Sally. Quite unlike Sally, yeah. And just for the record, I mean, the way you have described her in the past, which I thought <laughs> was great, this absolute floozy, this tart, this sleep around kind of girl, that's who you're having to audition as. You go yeah. in, 
he, I guess, sees the name Sally Field. Yeah, and doesn't want me in there. Because he's thinking, get yeah, it, flying yeah. nun. Well, yeah. he, you know, he was, Bob had, had been one of the creators and producers of the Monkees, which was right across the street. We, we shot on the same lot. When you, you know, were doing when I was doing the nuns, yeah. so uh, you know, and the monkeys used to come visiting all the time. So all, <laughs> that's the only image he had in his head of what what I was. But you, you know? won him over with the audition. Well, not right away. I mean, I had to I had to keep coming in and coming in until finally I read with Jeff Jeff, Jeff Bridges, Bridges yeah. who's who you know was already a huge, wonderful star, dazzling, facile, brilliant, generous Jeff, and then I I was given the role. Now, how much of a shock was it for people? As I recall, you have a nude scene in this mm-hmm. movie. This is we're now seeing again. Not to not to belabor the point, but this is a long way from the Flying Nun, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How did you feel about going such a long way in the mm-hmm. other direction, and how did audiences receive that? Well, you know, the thing is, is that I had to be such a different character. I had to try to embody it as much as I could, that no one would even think to say that. Yes. No one would even think to compare because if it, because the comparisons would always be there. That would always be. I mean, Rafelson called me, you know, early on and said, "Geez, I'm having a hard time hiring the flying nun." You know, it's like, he okay, said that to you. yeah, oh yeah, and worse, oh, <laughs> you know. Wow. And so I had to just, I had to take that feeling and use it in, you know, in, in actor studio terms. I had done some movies for television before when. And that were always well received. Few when they first, because that was when movies for TV were mm-hmm. first starting. When I, in the very early seventies, and again the, was always comparing me to. Was always saying, "What a surprise!" You know, or why did they hire her over their state? You know, but then saying, "But gee, she did a good." You know, it was always a backhanded right. something or other. And I did a very smart thing, and that is that I never read any of them until. Very recently, right? Uh, I, I just didn't read them. I didn't look at them. I didn't. I didn't want to know, and just kept my head down. Well, if Stay Hungry was the beginning of mm-hmm. sort of shattering those mm-hmm. preconceptions about you, I think the thing that fully mm-hmm. did that would have been Sybil the same mm-hmm. year, right? Mm-hmm. This is the four-hour TV movie or miniseries? Would you say it was, was a miniseries? It later became a movie that they put together and released it all over Europe and everything. It was a it was a miniseries when miniseries were brand new. As a matter of fact, it came out the same year as as Roots. Right, right, right. So it was the brand new world of miniseries and became a phenomenon. The story of a, a woman with multiple personality disorder. But getting that part sounds like it was an interesting experience because the other character and mm-hmm. this is going to be played by Joanne Woodward mm-hmm. who had done the other great I know. movie about multiple characters of the three faces of Eve 19 years earlier so now you are going in and you're going to work you're going to audition with her mm-hmm. well eventually I auditioned with her but I had a lot of meetings before that because again I was not one they wanted to meet with at all but again it was Diane Crittenton the casting director who put me on the list and I had to come in I had to come in as Sybil how do you do that I just had to I had to pick which one which but one, yeah I had you know I was her shell person like there was nobody home there you know hugely shy and awkward and and can't meet anybody's eyes and and drab and lifeless and mm-hmm. until the work began and then become the other pieces of her and how instrumental was it when you did get to auditioning with 
Joanne Woodward that how key was that session in terms of securing the part? Well, we did some sort of screen test, but it, it was honestly the first time I had ever done a videoed screen, you know, video anything with video. Video was brand new in, in, a, in a way. It was like, what the heck is this? Because everything had always been, I had done one test before in my life, and that was for Gidget. And that had been like on a set and with a crew and with a camera. And it's like, you, you, I, this was video. Everything was changing <laughs> yeah. now. Was, the whole industry was changing. And it was in a, an, an office where I had, you know, met with everyone time and time again. And Joanne and I had never met. We hardly spoke. We simply went to work. She was Dr. Wilbur instantly. I came in as Sybil. We knew what we needed. We, we were who we were. And we did three scenes, I remember, back, sort of back to back to back. And at one point, I, I scurried out of the chair and, and crawled under a, a big conference table or something. And she followed me, and they tried to follow us uh, handheld then. And she tried to bring me slash Sybil out. And I crawled out slowly, and, and, and she was sitting on a chair, a low chair. And I, Sybil had a, a part of her that couldn't be touched. She was afraid to be touched. She was so shut down emotionally uh, because all of the other characters within her held all the different emotions, and she was frightened of touch. So I knew that, and I so I couldn't touch Joanne, but I wanted so much to, and, and of course I'm hugely emotional and didn't, wanted something, so I grabbed a piece of her sweater, the sleeve of her sweater, and I wiped my nose on it that was like gushing <laughs> snot from every every end of, of my <laughs> and this wasn't a costume this was and <laughs> this was her personal sweater you know and I literally grabbed her sweater and I rubbed my nose on it and she never ever flinched she leaned down over her body you know and and with this tender gentle touch like she knew Sybil was afraid to be touched she laid her hand on the top of my head very, very gently. And I remember that so well. And then evidently she told everyone when the, when the session was over, when I went home, she said, if Sally isn't Sybil, I'm not Dr. Wilbur. And that's why I was hired. Wow. And would you say that part was the, the first one that really fully provided you with the creative challenge and satisfaction that you had been seeking so desperately? Yeah. Yeah, that was the one that, that finally I was, you know, every inch, every ounce, every fiber, every thread of, of information I had ever gathered from working with Lee or from my miles in the saddle or from, you know, whatever I gathered from working with David Craig, I had to call in. Then it was all, you know, all hands on deck. I read that you sent your mother a letter during that period. And again, she had been your original scene partner. You're mm -hmm. probably your first example of what an actress or what, what, what the actor's life could be. What did you have to say at that point to her? I just think I, I, I was using it as a tool. I mean, it certainly was everything I felt, but it was so, it was so emotional. And so much of Sybil's life is about her family and what you know, stays hidden inside. So it, it, in a lot of ways, it was a kind of razor blade I was using to scrape off layers of, of protection and allow, raw myself up, but just of, of you know, my, my feelings for her. Sure. And the final product comes out, people 
look at you in a totally different mm-hmm. way from that point. There was a before and after several, right? Mm-hmm. And you win an Emmy. But my sense is that your own feelings going forward were not, you didn't necessarily feel that much better about yourself or your opportunities afterwards, right? There was a period where the worlds were still not pouring in and people were being negative about your parents and all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff, right? Well, you know, the worlds, it was a, there was a difficult, and there's always a difficult time for women, but there weren't a lot of roles for women. It, there was this, right now at this time, I mean, this was like 76. Mm-hmm. There were a few, it was beginning. It was just barely, barely beginning to have this little bubble that happened. Alice Doesn't Live Here any, yeah. Anymore came out in... 74. S- yeah, right in the 70s. So it was just this tiny little crack was beginning to open up but I wasn't falling into it yet so roles weren't really happening they weren't there to happen it was mostly you had to be very 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 pretty you know it was models and uh, extremely beautiful women and I wasn't that and so you know I never thought things fall in your lap because they just never ever do it can't that's never going to happen and if they did I would be suspect. That wouldn't. That just was not. That's not something that's. It's overrated. But it. But an opportunity did come my way. Literally, as I as we wrapped Sybil, which was a bizarre one, which was I was offered a Smoking the Bandit, and Bert was on his way to being the most one of the most popular male. This is Bert Reynolds. And, yes, and that outreach that you're referring to sparked sort of the beginning of an era i think four films together right or maybe yes, even... something like that but i but really i just was and he was good enough to know that i was just trying to stay alive because i had two children and I, there was just i wasn't there wasn't like i was turning down i wasn't turning down you know the sand pebbles and then <laughs> i was doing it just they just weren't there not for me so in each time i i worked each each of those films i worked on the roles got less and less valuable, less and less important, less and less... The ones with Bert. Right. So the, just for the record, Smoking the Bandit, Smoking the Bandit 2, The End, and Hooper. And in the course of this, I mean, basically his his outreach had been that he wanted you to come play his love interest. Mm-hmm. And from your point of view, from what I understand, it was like at a time when some people are saying... Sally Field as Sybil is not right. the most... Right, well, that, the initial one, I'm smoking the bandit when it came, I mean, with all due respect to everybody involved, it was just the script was, yikes. <laughs> it was... Non-existent, uh, right? <laughs> and, but Bert had called me on the phone. I didn't know he... Before I read the script, saying, don't read the script, don't read the script, sort of saying, we, we, we'll make this work. It, it was... It wasn't really a script there. It was... Made no sense, actually. <laughs> it probably still doesn't make any sense. I don't know what it was. And so we went, and, and I, I, I agreed to do it really fearfully, but agreed to do it because I, I, it wasn't even me thinking. I had, a, I had new representation, finally somebody who believed in me, and she said, you know what, this might not be a bad idea because I was coming out of Sybil. People hadn't seen it yet, but they were saying, you know, the talk was, gee, it's a really nice performance, but woof, is she ugly? You know, I was like, because oh. you're just a sort of a dowdy. Oh character. yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm like really 
mentally ill. So yeah. you don't have it like in your head, you better fix yourself right. up. I had no false eyelashes <laughs> on, you know, not that I ever had more. Right, right. So she said, you know what, it, it might not be a bad idea starring opposite Dirt, who was, you know, a bona fide sex symbol by then. And so, and I just, it was, again, it was sort of like, it's certainly a leap of faith, but something that's, you know, that reaches in and sort of turns your life. And so I agreed to do it. And we made it up as we went as we went along, literally. And what was Hal Needham? This well, Hal Needham is, is in, incredibly a, a brilliant stuntman. Yes, and he knows that he always knew that's what he was. Right. He never attempted to be. But he and Bert just liked hanging out with each other. Is that what he, it was? Well, they were best yeah, friends. Yeah. They were best friends. I mean, Hal lived in Bert's pool house for like five years or something, you know, and they, they were best, best, best friends. Did Hal ever know your father? Yes. They, of did. course, they all knew Jock. I mean, everybody, all the stunt guys. I was like their little sister instantly. Wow. Because I grew up in a, a stunt guy world. But and weirdly, um, you have said that it wasn't Hal, but it was Bert that actually was the most like your stepfather, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Just in, just sort of a way of, of looking at the world or treating you or what was it? I don't know. You know, it's, I, I, I don't, I don't really know. I don't know that, I don't know that Hal wasn't because I just didn't know Hal as well. Right. You know, you know, it's just a kind of, it's hard to say, um, you know, maybe it has to do with men who grew up in a certain era. Yeah, but you guys were during the period of these four movies, which was several years you were, that was when you were also involved with each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then while you were playing, I guess, the last of these, what you, you have called girl roles for Burt's movies, that's when you first... Where are you getting all of this? Have I said all this before? I think so. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I try to do my homework, but... I guess you have. Yeah. <laughs> but that's when you heard from Barton Ritt? I received a call, and I'm, I was in Opelika, Alabama. No, I was in, I was in Tuscaloosa. <laughs> I was in Tuscaloosa doing Hooper. Again, just I had like a few scenes, not many, and they were not of any importance. And I received a, a call from Martin Ritt, who, of course, I knew who he was, was certainly at that time considered and always will be a wonderful director, but certainly known as an actor's director. Came out of the actor's studio, the group theater, and he wanted to meet with me. And I didn't have time to get a script. I didn't know what it, really what it was for. I just said, I'll be there. <laughs> and I flew home, and the next day went on a meeting. I hadn't read the script. It had been sent to my house where my mother was staying with my two boys. And she was trying to tell me what the script was. As I'm quickly trying to, I didn't know who to go as. You know, I, if I, I knew how to audition, but I, if I didn't know who I was supposed right. to be, I didn't know what, what to be. Right. So I tried to just be beige, <laughs> just be nothing, <laughs> just be just don't do just try not to do anything right you know she told me a few things and i'm what so i went in this meeting with just a vague idea of what it was and fully prepared to to have to read and audition and 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 prove myself and prove myself and prove myself and uh, marty uh, sat down and said he'd seen civil yes and that he had that this screenplay had been offered to five other women and they all turned it down and that the studio didn't want me but he did marty did and he said read the script if you want to do it i will make sure it's yours it was like what 
how can this be? Because you'd never heard that Oh, thank God. Oh, no. Oh, no. No one was like, how many hoops can you jump through? You know, (laughs) flaming ones. Right. So I read the script on the airplane on the way back. This is Norma Ray. And it was Norma Ray. And, of course, my hands shook. And Marty called me two days later and said, the part is yours. And for people who still need to see this movie, which they should do ASAP, I'm sure it's easily, I'm sure it's on streaming or whatever as well. Southern textile mill worker who kind of finds a social Mm -hmm. consciousness. You maybe as a way of repaying his faith in you, Mm -hmm. totally poured yourself into this one, right? The preparation, the lifestyle of this character, all of it, right? Well, it's the work I had been trained to do by yeah. then. I did it for Sybil as well. Yeah. I mean, I became, they almost arrested me at one point in New York because they thought I was a crazy person walking up down the street. Wow. I mean, I, beca- you know, that's the work you do. Yeah, yeah. That's what I had been trained to do. So on Norma Ray, what did that involve? It, it, it meant becoming as much as I could Norma Ray, you know, to try to live in those shoes and learning to work in the mill and living in the town and certainly understanding every bit that you possibly could of the, of the character. So it, it certainly it wasn't you know done primarily because that to please Marty. It, it was what I it was what I do. Now I it, it was who I the actor that I had learned to be. It didn't hurt though when mid movie he I believe pays you a visit mm-hmm. and what unfolded? Well, he sees, he, of course, became incredibly important in my life, who he is and who he was and his voice in every way. And he was a man of, of, of very little words of puffing somebody up. You know, <laughs> I don't even say that. He, you know, he's, he didn't, you know, say a whole lot of grand words of this or that. You knew when he wasn't pleased. And you knew when he was pleased because he shook his head. And that was about it. So if he ever said anything to you that was of appreciation, it, it was staggering. It meant so much because he used it so sparingly. And he came into my motor home and sat down, and I thought, oh, God, have I done something wrong? Is there something? <laughs> and we talked for a second about, you know, the mill, and we, you know, we were using sound devices and funny things to try to pick up some of the blah, 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 you know, the technicality of of what we were doing and he got up to leave and before he left he said I just wanted to tell you Sal you're first rate and it was like somebody had just said I was the most special human being that ever walked on the planet it meant so much to me would you have guessed in that period that the scene in which you climb up on the table and hold up the union sign would be one that would be replayed forever and would you have guessed that the performance would be recognized in the way that it was, up to and including the Best Actress Academy Award? No. No, Did, I, I didn't think of any of that. I just, you can't think of any of that. Yeah. It's just literally the work. I, don't, I can't even remember if it was written in the script that she crawls on the table. It might have been improvised. I, I don't know. It was something like I mean, so much improvisation was going on because wow. Marty allowed it. I, I can't remember if it actually said I was on it or I sat on it. I don't remember. But but clearly, I, I remember there was a box down on towards the bottom, so it must have been something. But I remember li- not even touching the box and leaping to the, to the table, N- not having any idea except literally, you know, when you do that kind of work, it's, it's extraordinary because it, it was happening. And everybody in the room 
most of them extras that were that were from the town. Mm-hmm. So they felt it was happening. And sometimes we'd be in scenes where we were as the workers talking and there were extras that were from the town and they would just start to talk. They didn't know they weren't wait a minute, you're not in the scene. No. They would just start to talk because they thought it was they want they had something to say. Yeah. And this was hard and they, you know, because they knew what this struggle was. They knew how hard it was for these 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 working people who were shafted by big business mm. and why the unions needed to come in and help them. So that's who we were in the room. Oh, I mean, it's the kind of the perfect place to be as an actor because there's no acting any, anymore. Everybody stood there and felt it totally with tears in their eyes and with anger in their faces, with determination. And I just simply was their voice. Oh, that was great. And you can feel it watching it. And so I just wonder for you when you when you were recognized, even though that's not the reason you go and do it or whatever, but did that give you a, a greater sense of confidence or comfort going forward that people were now able to see you as, you know, without any of the, the things that you'd always heard up to that mm-hmm. point, oh, can you believe it's the mm-hmm. flying nun mm-hmm. who's doing this? Mm-hmm. Was this the the point where you could kind of stand on your own two feet in a way with without any I know Subble must have been uh-huh. it must have started there but this has got to be a huge moment in someone's life to win the best actress Oscar I, I, th- I think it was I think the whole process you know of all of all of those years was really a gradual process of hearing my own voice mm-hmm. and acting was my tool to find my own voice and the more skill I got at finding those places inside myself and bringing them forward through another character allowed me to hear myself. And I think by Norma, I had a clearer way to hear my voice even when I wasn't on stage. So, you know, always I will feel and do feel amazed and, and grateful and surprised, you know, when I'm given the opportunity to do what I do or when that, or when the work that I do is received yeah. and I don't mean received work I mean in other words when I s- said the words or when I you know sliced my wrists or whatever mm-hmm. that there was that I communicated something that I spoke to an audience and that they spoke back to me because yeah. it's a, it's a two-way conversation we have going and that's what it's for you know that I'm not so alone and that they're not so alone so over the over the next I guess five years you had a, a number of very memorable parts including in absence of malice, now with Joanne Woodward's husband, Paul Newman, and mm-hmm. a number of things. But then I guess you have to come back to the, the one five years later where, mm-hmm. in places in the heart, I should say, you, you're playing Edna Spaulding, this farmer's widow, who was, I think, very personal to the director, mm-hmm. Robert Benton, yeah. right? Who himself, I think the year it was his grandmother. Yeah. And so you guys had both kind of had a, a breakthrough in the same year because the year you won for. Norma Ray, he was recognized, I think, for Kramer versus That's Kramer. Right, yeah. Exciting time for both of you. And now you're asked to come, as you say, play as grandmother. How did this part compare to the the others up to that point? Was this a different challenge in a way? It was a was a different challenge. It's a very different project. Different challenge. It was a. It was originally a very big ensemble of a piece with extraordinary mm-hmm. actors, and originally the ensemble was very equal. Everybody's stories in the piece were equal and as the and Benton as Benton said as as the editing process went on it was Edna's 
story with Mose and Will, uh, Mr. Will, <laughs> that seemed to take center stage all on its own. And so, but the process was just a wonderful collaborative process of all of these extraordinary actors. And we had, Benton gave us like three weeks rehearsal. So it was, it was just like being in heaven. Really everybody doing the kind of work that, that I relate to, that we all relate to, and trying to find where all of these people lived and this era and, this, and these things they're going through. As a result of that performance, you joined a very, very elite club of people who have not one but two mm-hmm. Best Actress Oscars. I actually met the senior member recently. We did a, a little thing about Olivia de Havilland, who's mm-hmm. now in Paris, and it's going strong at 100, but there's not many. And I just wonder for you, it seems like, as alluded to in your second acceptance speech, it did mean an extra something to you, maybe something different than even what the first one meant. Well, the first one, you know, the whole event, even then, even though it was much smaller those days than it is now, I mean, much, much, much smaller. But it was so huge to me, all of this going, that I almost just, I went back to a place where I survived as a kid, and that is I just was in a bubble. I was in a fog. I tuned out. I couldn't feel it. I didn't allow myself to feel it. I just said, you know, it was just like, get through it. Yeah. So I didn't own it. And I knew enough by then to know that it, this is a really tough business. You know, people listen to this and go, oh, yeah, really, babe, real tough. I mean, you, you can get paid, and sometimes extraordinarily, but like my parents, like where I grew up, sometimes it's a lot harder than you think. Most working people in this country work incredibly, incredibly hard. And so the, the tough part of this business is that you get your soul, your self, your person thrashed, you know, examined and tossed out, you know, your nose, your ears, your body, your personality, your voice. And it's, it's one thing, it's terrible to be thrashed as a working person and you've got to earn a living. And a, but when your whole person, your whole psyche, everything gets tossed aside and smashed, it it's becomes a, a real challenge to pick yourself up and dust yourself off and say, you know, there are a lot of worse things. Because, I mean, you know, I think of Hillary Clinton right now. I yeah. think, how is she? How is she? I send her every bit of my heart. Mm-hmm. But I know she will. Mm-hmm. I know she will. Because she's this great spirit inside of her that will not be conquered. So I think on a very, 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 very much less scale, I think part of me decided if I won that award that year, I was determined to feel it. Because if you get pieces of the good, of the accomplishment, then you have to allow yourself to feel it. Otherwise, all you feel is the negative, is the beat up part is the trashing part. And that your soul, your your person, your psyche can't handle and you'll quit. You'll just close up shop and say, you know, I, some, some part of you will close up shop. So I just, just said to myself, I'm gonna feel this. I'm gonna feel it, whatever it is. And and it was just one of those years, was the first year where they started flashing that light to get off the stage. Oh, God. <laughs> they started flashing big light right in your face. And it was the first time it was a huge, they don't do it quite like that. Now they play the orchestra. Right. They try to be gentle. <laughs> but now they had a huge red 
glaring light that started flashing in your face. So it was like, ah, it's like the police are coming after you, you know? So I panicked, you know, went, oh, I've gone on too long. I said nothing. You know what? I sort of thanked my children or thanked Benton. I was, I think I began to talk about the other actors or something and I had to get off. So I quick, quick, get off. And, and I remembered the part of me that said, but, but you didn't say anything that mattered. You didn't say anything genuine. And I, I, without, you know, knowing it, said what I said, but people always take it out of context. I mean, it's, it's, it is what it is, but it, in context, I talk about the journey and, and that no matter whatever happened in the journey for this one moment in time, I couldn't deny the fact. And it just came out because how do you, how do you verbalize for this one moment in time? I'm what I'm. I, I did it. That doesn't work. I, I accomplished what I needed to accomplish. That doesn't work. It sounds like I'm trying to invent penicillin or something, you know, <laughs> I couldn't, you know, how do you, how do you describe what it is that, that this communication is between audience and whatever I am after? And that's how it came out. And just to provide the context that you're saying it's often taken out of, yeah. quote, I haven't had an orthodox career and I've wanted more than anything to have your respect. The first time I didn't feel it. But this time I feel it, and I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. So it isn't just, you know, often, the, first of yeah, all, it's yeah. misquoted. You like so me, always, you really like me, right? It's, it's always not, misquoted. <laughs> but it, it, it is interesting now, I think, for somebody who's been listening to this conversation up to this point, they get maybe mm-hmm. more than somebody yeah. just tuning in that night what an unorthodox journey it was yeah, up to that yeah, point. Yeah, it's been very unorthodox. And, and it was also granted that tomorrow you may not. Mm-hmm. But for right this moment, I did what I needed to do. But I, there's no words to say that. It's such a nebulous kind of feeling. And it, it, it's such an interesting item in the, in, the, in the world, certainly for me, is how easily people want to trash that emotion, you know, or ridicule it or uh, misquote it and make fun of it. And what it really is, is raw emotion. It's just raw expression of emotion. And, and it was, you know, the, I didn't look at it, but I know that even the next day it was like people were writing essays and articles and things of what I had done. It, it was so odd. It's silly. And you know, you can't win because then when you're not being honest and emotion, uh, honest up there, um, and people get a sense that what you're saying is a little fake or calculated, mm-hmm. which is what they said when Anne Hathaway, for instance, won. Then they trash you to bits for they that. They trash the other way. Yeah. And Anne, who I who I know, and I was on that same Oscar journey with her that year, yes. um, is hugely emotional person. I mean, just like I know she had so much going on inside of her that she you you get so you get so frightened that that they're going to come after you. You know what? But enough miles in the saddle. You go. You know what, boys? How about this? Yeah, right. This is how much I care. You come after me. I think there was an interesting thing that started maybe around the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, where you were now often the matriarch of a family, mm-hmm. whether it was Steel Magnolias. But then for my generation, mm-hmm. my discovery of you, really, I'd never heard of Gidget or Flying mm-hmm. Nun or any of this stuff, was Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. And we loved that movie. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, as sort of being the, the straight woman in a way to Robin Williams, mm-hmm. just... Were you having fun in the way that those of us who watched it were? It was certainly one of the great experiences of my life to to be, you know, with Robin 
for that length of time. But also knowing what my role was in it in a way. You know, I was his straight man, yeah. you know, and so we would do a lot of improv and I knew that that my task was to keep him fueled. And I would drive him crazy though, because he could never make me laugh. You can, and everybody you everybody else would break up and fall down and they had to cut, cut, cut. I ne- he never could make me laugh. And I guess it's because I was so, I had, I, I then have such an ability to concentrate yeah. on what character I am and what I'm doing. I was just the character and the character wasn't going to laugh at him. Right. Character was like fed up with him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that was great. So I drove him insane. But then he was like literally he making, wants the attention, making right? fart noises yeah. in his arm. I mean, anything, you know. It's just like, well, he seemed like he was uh, he, he totally was, unique. He was just a diamond, diamond. Mm. The year after that, just one year after that, you're, you get a, I guess actually during the making of that movie, mm-hmm. you get a phone call from Robert Zemeckis and Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, you'd played his love interest just six years earlier, I mm-hmm. think, in Punchline. Mm-hmm. How did this conversation unfold? It just un- unfolded. He, they sent me the script, and the script was remarkable. Tom said, Tom called and said, would you play my mother? <laughs> and I said, you betcha. And there was no, like, oh, what God, the hell no. is this? No, 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 of course not. Because I play also, I begin the movie, I play much younger yes. than what I was, yeah. and then I play much older than what I was. Sure. So how, you know, well, how fun is that? It was, no, it's amazing. And every, I'm sure you can't probably go outside without somebody quoting back to you, life is like, box of chocolates or any of that but the thing that I really found interesting and kind of poignant and and moving to read was that the little eight-year-old boy who was playing the younger Uh Forrest Gump was I guess struggling and Uh with kids they're on the clock they can only go for a certain number of hours and the way I've heard it described by other people who were there you really took him under your wing in the way that Don Porter, Madeline Mm -hmm. Sherwood or somebody might have done with you and and Maybe because you're the only person that could relate to, in a, in a way, what it's like to be the the person who's not like everybody mm-hmm. else on the mm-hmm. set, and you got him through it. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I I think Tom was also a part of it, even though he wasn't obviously in those scenes. But we would take him, you know, on the weekend and 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 go do something. And but I remember what I did for this specifically because he was a little guy and he wanted to go home or he wanted and I don't want to do that again and I would I had a in my trailer my motorhome I had bought all these toys I had like I had them all lined up you know toy after toy after toy after toy because he's a little kid he didn't you know what's he going to get a paycheck a, a career he didn't care yeah. he wants to go home so I would bribe him yeah. <laughs> I would say okay I got something behind my back, you know. And he would go, and I'd say, okay, let's just do it one more time. Come on, one more time. We'll do it one more time, and then you get to see. Sometimes I had to give him everything right. in the trailer because we got to, But I would keep the trailer stocked with things. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with bribing every now and then. No. Would you have ever imagined that after making that jump all those decades earlier from TV to film, that the time would come when with first ER, then brothers and sisters, uh, a few years after that, you would want to go back to television. Mm-hmm. That would have been unthinkable for a movie star years earlier, but now you were at the vanguard of what is now pretty common. Uh-huh. Yeah. Everything was changing. Yeah. So you have to constantly ask yourself. I mean, the only way to have a long-term career is you constantly ask yourself, why am I here? Why am I here? What mm-hmm. am I doing here? If you're there because you want to be a star or you like any of the whoopity-doo that might go along with it, if, if there is anything that goes along with it, 
eh, chances are you're not going to last very long. If you're there because you have something inside of you that that likes, that demands that you tell stories with your own self, that's what acting is, then you have to, you have to find where it is, and it's always changing. And certainly it was the beginning of, of, of huge changes that were happening in television. Brothers and Sisters wasn't totally it because it was on network, but at the same time, Mad Men was happening and Breaking Bad was happening. It was just beginning. So television was beginning to be the place that film had been in the 70s, in the mid-70s. Where it could be creative, edgy. Creative and really looking at character and, you know, very off the mainstream in a way, you know, off of the glossy mainstream kind of movies that had come out of the 60s, yeah. came into the 70s, which were grittier and, you know, character-driven stories. And then television was doing it, which was altogether different. Yeah. One last pre hello, my name is Doris thing, and that is Lincoln, where you had been in touch from from what I remember Steven Spielberg saying about this years before the movie mm-hmm. was even financed. Mm-hmm. It was just an idea. Mm-hmm. So what was it that? How had you heard about the possibility even that he might be doing this, and and why were you so passionate about playing Mary Todd Lincoln? It's not the obvious one that everybody in the world wants to play. So what was what was it? Well, it kind of is. Is it? Oh yeah. Because it's only recently, because we're sort of demanding it, that American film has started to look at historical female characters. Mm-hmm. We just are kind of overlooked. will be a, an aspect of, of the man, but really haven't been examined. I mean, where's the look at Margaret Mead and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of, you know, really remarkable women. And Mary Todd was definitely one of them. Now, granted, this film is not about Mary Todd, but still it was having a moment with her. And I... I had heard that Doris Kern Goodwin was was writing the book, and I had been tracking it. What would that be? Then I heard Stephen picked it up, and I I happened to know Stephen, so I didn't say anything because I wouldn't. It would just not be what I said, but somebody mentioned it to him somehow. It's also that I'm physically more right for her than anyone else you can think of. First of all, I'm tiny like she is, and you can't fake that, you know, you can't walk around on your knees, and she was, it's arguably, it's, it's, it changes. Some people say she was not quite five feet. Some people say she was 5'2". Well, I'm 5'2". And also there's a roundness to my face that she has now, you know. And there was other, there are other reasons mm-hmm. why I'm right for it age-wise. She wasn't, it wasn't Mary as a young woman. It was Mary in, in her 40s, even though when I played it, I was in my 60s. Mm-hmm. So he, he, he had asked me early on to be Mary uh, before there were scripts. And so I, w- I read a lot of different scripts. And it went on a long time and ultimately ended in, in, in also another remarkable time of, of auditioning uh, because I wouldn't let him walk away from me. I wouldn't let him. I wouldn't let him. And it did seem like it almost got away from you, right? I mean, It did. It did once because it, originally it was with Liam Neeson then Liam had dropped out, and then it went, and that was before it was written by Tony Kushner, the brilliant Tony Kushner. Mm. And then there was a screen, and this was years and years and years, and then there was a screenplay, and he had asked Daniel Day Lewis to do it, and Daniel Day said yes, and I knew I was in trouble. Daniel is 10 years younger than I am, and also I was, you know, like 20 years older than what Mary was, you know, and she was, Mary was 10 years younger than Lincoln. But look at Mary. <laughs> That's what I said. 
Look at Mary, Stephen, and you tell me you see those 10 years between Mary and Lincoln. They both look like crap. Are you kidding? You know? So, you know, I demanded, you know, the first time I sort of did that, that Stephen test me. And at first it was without Daniel. And then wonderful Daniel told Stephen that, that he needed to see us together. And he flew in from Ireland, and wow. we did we did another test. Amazing. And, and it's a testament to your commitment that I think you, I believe I read, gained 25 mm-hmm. pounds for that, which for a small yes. person is a huge amount it's of a, weight. It's a huge amount right. for me. And the thing I got the biggest kick out of, because we did, I moderated one of these full cast mm-hmm. Q&As with you guys, mm-hmm. and it came out that even though Daniel Day-Lewis, I guess, sort of wanted to remain in character mm-hmm. throughout, mm-hmm. even when the cameras weren't rolling or whatever, mm-hmm. the way that, that he had that level of need to, to be faithful to the character, how did you two communicate? Well, I loved it. We communicated perfectly. We communicated as Mary and Mr. Lincoln, as, as Molly and Mrs. And Mr. Lincoln. That's how we communicated with the same verbiage, but we texted each other. That's the thing. You know, <laughs> yeah. I... I personally hate talking on the telephone. Yeah, yeah. If, don't ever call me on the telephone. <laughs> and so texting was perfect. And right. it's also, you know, you, had, you have to really think about it because the, the use of the language then was very different. So it was great, great fun. It was so much fun. I, I loved every, I mean, that's, when, that's the time where I really say fun. Yeah. It was just, I didn't really have to think, oh, wait a minute, they didn't use that. Okay, how do I say that? How do I say that? <laughs> so uh, I, I think we both got a, kick out of each other in, in that way he he you know they always talk about how daniel stays in care i stay in character mm-hmm. so i loved all of that mm-hmm. i completely loved it and and people loved you in it i think it must have been pretty special for first time in 28 years to get a an oscar nomination not that anyone doubted if you still had it or whatever but that's gotta that's gotta be kind of nice mm-hmm. to, when not many people have that kind of a span of of this sort of recognition but this brings us to the most recent thing that, that people have really loved you in, which was made for $1 million mm-hmm. in three weeks, mm-hmm. and it is Hello, My Name is Doris. So I just wonder if I can turn it over to you. This was your first leading role in a while in a film. What was it about this character that drew you to her and that made you want to play her? Well, she's just so unique. She's this very, very unique character that I had never even attempted to do. And the story, it, it, what it looks at is, is really important and wonderful about human beings. And also to me, it was that it, the challenge of, of it being high, high comedy. I mean, it's really funny. And then butted up against it is tragedy. You know, so there would be deep sadness liter- that you have to weave together without it ever jarring the audience out of the seats and say, wait, what movie are we in now? Wait a minute. <laughs> There's always talk, particularly in the film industry, about ageism and and they're not mm-hmm. especially kind to women as the years go by. And I I just wonder, has that been your experience? Have you found that the opportunities to play a character who is interesting and complex and is at the center of a movie, mm-hmm. those are just fewer and farther between as as time goes by? Of course, but honestly, now that we've talked forever here, yes. about, you can see that I'm. Nothing has ever been easy. No, not no. one moment no. of my career, except Gidget. Hey, be Gidget. Right. Everything has been a struggle. Nothing ever fell in my lap. Nothing, you know. When I when I won an Emmy for Sybil, when I won an Oscar for Norma, when I won an Oscar for Places in the Heart, when whatever it was, mm-hmm. it, it didn't mean like, 
open the doors, the, the scripts are falling in. Right. It never, ever happened for me like that. I don't know if it was me or that I don't fit into some category or I'm not good enough or I don't know what. But so I never expected it to be any different. Well, one thing that you have said, and, and it's interesting, is that there are a finite number of roles for women, let's say over 60, and you pointed out that many of them, are, I guess, are offered to Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, what do you make of her and what do you make of that? That, that you know, there that A, there aren't, I guess there aren't a ton of roles for women over 60. I don't know what that says about our society or our industry or whatever, because they go to the movies. They probably more regularly than than people who are pirating them and watching them on their phones. But so I guess the the idea that there aren't more roles for women over 60, but also just how, you know, in a weird way, the Meryl phenomenon. I can't really say. I know yeah. Meryl is, first of all, brilliant beyond anyone's wildest dreams. I admire her greatly because she, you know, you don't know that so much that everything comes to her as much as she finds things and makes sure they get done. And she's a, she's an engine and of, of what that I know of her because she has a hunger inside of her that, that she can't answer either. So there is nothing except good that comes out of Meryl being so hugely successful for women and, and for older women. And maybe because some of those movies have made money, maybe it makes people more open to the idea of doing others about with a protagonist who's a female over over 60. Could no. that be, you don't think? No, <laughs> I don't think so. It's not? It's not. No, because I, I, Meryl was sitting here, she'd roll her eyes. Because some of them have made money. You know, I think Helen Mirren is, 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 an, is another example. You know, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant example. And, you know, she's carved a, a place for herself. And, and she's in movies that are, some of them that are like thrillers and things. Those make money. It's a difficult dance. Yeah. When we did this panel at AFI Fest on whatever last weekend, I think I ticked you off a little bit because I suggested that this character, Doris, uh-huh. I'm trying to remember exactly how I phrased it, that didn't go over so well. But like <laughs> she embraced, she, she finds herself in some situations. That no, are, you know what you asked? You asked me if it was uncomfortable to do the some of the more the, the love scenes. Oh, the, the, was it the love? The scene? making out scenes. Yeah. Well, that, I think that was one, maybe there was even another thing I said that oh, okay. also didn't go. Was that not the point? <laughs> no, well, it was. Okay. I know that one didn't. That you didn't like that <laughs> but one, but I, that was just, <laughs> I think that no, and I took it. I I, I enjoyed it, but yeah. I think that she winds up. This character Doris winds up in situations that are a little crazy or ridiculous or whatever. Not in a bad uh, way, uh-uh. but it, that's comedy, right? And yeah. do you do you find yourself enjoying? You've done comedy you've done very dark stuff as well in terms of comfort level where was this character for you i don't look for a comfort level if no, you're comfortable no. you're not acting no and, I, you know acting's not comfortable not for not ever but were you having i know we come back to fun you don't you don't have fun doing not necessarily <laughs> but was it enjoyable to be in this character skin hugely hugely challenging yeah and in that way, incredibly enthralling. What in, was the most this, challenging aspect? It, the, the most challenging aspect of it is what I mentioned, to weave the two together. When a character has crying scenes that are comedic, you can't cry in the same way that you can when you have a tragedy and your heart is broken and it's, it's now drama. That's the challenge. There's a different kind of crying that is to be equally as real, equally as heartbroken, but it's funny, right. and everybody and you and people are laughing. Right. And then there's the kind of crying 
that's that your heart has just fallen out of your feet and you don't know that you'll pick yourself up and move on so that's challenging and and the tones within that were challenging and really interesting to play with the way i again i i don't know if you were able to hear this when right before we did intros of people at that panel we played clips of each of the Mm -hmm. panelists and it was the one of you sort of fantasizing mm-hmm. with Max and the way you played that. People got a better response than anything else in the room. People love that. It's hilarious. It's the only so, comedy up there, I think. It may, <laughs> uh, there's some comedy in other, like, but that, but it was just a great, uh, great calibration, like, like what you're talking about, where you have to walk that line. But my final thing is just today, while you're still forging ahead with many other projects, and I can't wait to see you in the, Glass Menagerie on Broadway. Do you ever think about your past characters and and what they might have to say about something or where they might be today? And do you also personally ever wonder what you might have done with your life had you not found your way into acting? I don't know. I would have found my way into acting somehow. I I, I would have. I, I just would have. There's just no question. And it's a funny thing about acting and about learning the craft and on a, on a deep level the craft that really, really digs down and, and and requires you to find pieces of yourself or reveal yourself or own yourself or be in the, your own human experience in such a deep way. It's an interesting thing that happens is that it changes you. You come out of a character that you've spent months being, walking in her shoes, if, whoever it is, if it's Mary Todd or, you know, or Norma or and different places in the heart or others that you know years later you you find yourself saying something and you go and you have a deja vu and you think wait a minute I've I felt this before I, I I felt this before when did I feel this before when did I say this and you realize it wasn't you at all it was the character and so somehow the life experience that you have in playing the character where you ask your own psyche your own brain your own emotional existence to come to the plate you know, interweaves itself with whatever's happening to the character. So it becomes your own existence. And I sometimes wonder, as, as life has gone on, I think about other actors, and I wonder if, if John Wayne had not been playing those big, macho, you know, shoot 'em up roles with this kind of real, you know, um, all-American, you know, be damned kind of thing. If he'd have been playing Jack Nicholson roles, mm-hmm. if he'd have been playing Jimmy Stewart roles, or even though, you know, Jimmy did a lot of them too, or softer roles, even though he looked like that and chances of it were going to be slim. Let's say he was Cary Grant. Yeah. Would he have still been the John Wayne character as a human being that he, that he became, you know, or Charlton Heston? Would would he have been the man standing up there with a rifle in his hand saying, you know, my you know, my cold dead body or whatever the hell it is he said? Was he not informed somehow by the roles that they they grew up playing and then they those characters lodged inside of them and they be, became it helped become who they who they were, you know. I don't know. So maybe that means that Norma and Edna and Sybil all of them all changed me. Changed you. They all changed me. Sybil changed me. There's no question. Gidget wow. changed me. Well, it's been amazing to watch your work, and I can't thank you enough for all the time that you've given for this. And I hope you know. It sounds like you know. Obviously, there was a lot of 
struggle and hard work that you've put in, but I hope you feel some sense that it's been appreciated. Just listening to you over the course of this conversation has given me a, a greater appreciation for what you've had to do. So I, I thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. All right. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.